0: You're listening to the Exegete Podcast by Gary Livengood. This is Lesson 3 in our series on Second Peter. Well, welcome to this session in the book of Second Peter. Uh, we'll pick up the text in verse 5 and go through verses 5 to 8 here together. Um, whereas uh, verses 1 to 4... Peter emphasizes God's work relating to the knowledge of God. Remember that important word, knowledge. Verses 5 to 8 stress our uh, responsible participation in fleshing out the true knowledge of God. Um, this is sometimes referred to uh, by scholars or commentators as the golden chain of virtues. Uh, so read. I'll read through this beginning in verse 5. Now for this very reason also, Applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful, in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So those uh, middle verses there, you can see how Peter links those virtues together, and we'll go through that here in a moment. Also, uh, in this golden chain of virtues, as as we go through and kind of define these and uh, look at some similar texts, I also want to mention, well, at least what I see as the opposites of these virtues that are Uh, Very apparent, uh, very obvious, I think, in our culture today, and how uh, really godliness is so opposite to the thinking of our world. So, the first thing that Peter says, for this very reason also, applying all diligence. Uh, Of course, the word diligence, and there's actually two very similar words, I think, in, in this list. Uh, diligence, and then he later says perseverance, so he's really emphasizing this idea of keeping at it. Diligence can be uh, defined as persevering, or being constant in something, or steady, or uh, industrious. That's what we are to be in our Christian faith. This idea of sort of living your Christian faith according to your mood, or when it's convenient, that's completely unbiblical, Um, the Lord has no intention for us to live that way. Here's what Hebrews 6, uh, 11 and 12 say related to that. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So he not only says, the writer says, not only be diligent, but he says, don't be sluggish. And uh, you can make of it what you want, I suppose, as when he says, so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. But that is a very important passage describing the importance of diligence. What uh, what does our culture say? Well, one of the things that certainly defines our culture today as uh, as we do this teaching is the idea of instant gratification. Uh, That's what so many in our in our culture live for, and really now uh, kind of expect. that That's what they expect. Expect and diligence probably has lost a lot of its um, understanding of importance in our lives. And, and by the way, diligence also means that God is not a magic genie. Uh, he's not here to just simply meet your every desire. Uh, and I think there's some in the Christian community. I've seen them on TV, as a matter of fact that, uh, encourage you to send in your seed money and God will make you rich. Well, this, this again, diligence, um, means God is not a magic genie there for our pleasure and our comfort and to answer every, uh, every desire we have. Um, what we should be practicing is diligence in prayer and study and teaching and training and worship and all those things. You know what they are that we are to stay at. The second thing that Peter says here is moral excellence. Uh, The idea of morality is conforming to a standard of right behavior. Uh, Morality or righteousness means conforming to a standard of right behavior. Um, How important is moral excellence? Um, Well, Hebrews 12.14 says, "...without holiness no one will see the Lord." So I would say moral excellence is incredibly important. Here's what Jesus says in Matthew five, seventeen to nineteen. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until the until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But uh, whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. One of the things Jesus did come to do was to uh, fulfill the the law in the sense of becoming the perfect sacrifice. And that uh, did away with the Old Testament sacrificial system the Old Testament ceremonial law. But Jesus says the moral law has not been done away with and never will. So uh, the moral law, moral excellence, is still the way we are to live. And, you know, the meaning, of course, of the word excellence is outstanding, quality, eminently good. So we are to excel in our moral lives. Now, of course, the culture we that we live in... Uh, Basically teaches, do do what is right in your own eyes, do your own thing. Uh, I can remember as, as a young man growing up, there was this phrase that a lot of people were living by, and it was this, if it feels good, do it. Um, there's no real standard according to our culture. All things are relative. But uh, we see in this passage in Matthew 5, 18, the moral law is permanent. That's a really good passage to keep in mind. If you're ever talking about this matter uh, to someone, not only the relativist, but also those who might say, well, you know, didn't Jesus do away with the law? He did away with the ceremonial or temple or sacrificial law. He did not do away with the moral law. The third uh, virtue that Peter emphasizes here is knowledge. Now, this is the Greek term gnosis. Uh, meaning inquiry and investigation into spiritual truth. That's the way Peter uses it. Inquiry and investigation into spiritual truth. And God promises in Proverbs 8, 8, 17, he who diligently seeks me shall find me. So related to that word, gnosis, inquiry, investigation, uh, perfect verse, he who diligently seeks me shall find me. Or uh, Colossians 2.3, in whom, talking about Jesus, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Of course, uh, in the culture, it's okay to seek spiritual truth, and I've had people tell me this. It's okay to seek spiritual truth, that's fine. Uh, but just keep in mind that no single truth exists that is applicable to everybody. There's no absolute single spiritual truth. We live in a culture of multiculturalism. All sorts of different approaches are, are fine and acceptable. I mentioned relativity, um, uh, relativism rather, and in, in many ways to God. Those are all uh, permeating our culture. Um, and oh, and especially this one, you go ahead and believe what you want, but don't push your values on me. That's a big one too. But the, the fact is that Peter says here, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, that uh, uh, we are to seek knowledge. Uh, we are to be involved with this inquiry and investigation into spiritual truth. And uh, that should primarily happen uh, in the Word of God. Here's the fourth thing that Peter says. He talks about self-control. Uh, self-control uh, is the willingness, please note that word, the willingness and the ability to deny the flesh. Uh, That is, of course, in thought, in word, in deed, in attitude, and so forth, the willingness and the ability to deny the flesh. And if you want to practice self-control, the Lord will clearly enable you to do that, because uh, self-control is one of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. It's, It's both in a positive sense and a negative sense. The Holy Spirit wants to develop self-control in you, not only so that you won't violate the moral law, but also so that you will, uh, as we've seen here, uh, uh, seek moral excellence, seek spiritual knowledge. So there's both a a negative aspect of self-control and a positive. Don't do these things. Do do these things. And all of those things take self-control uh, it took me a long time to discipline myself, self-control, to uh, learn to get up early in the morning to spend time with God. It took a while to get that down. But the Holy Spirit enabled me, uh, helped me develop self-control uh, in order to do that. So that's the positive side of it. Um, so, listen, the, the doing the right thing is important even when you don't feel like it. And self-control is so important critical in that measure because we certainly don't always feel like doing the right thing whatever the right thing may be whatever the context might be we don't feel like doing that but self-control means doing it whether you're in the mood or not um, self-control uh in pause in the positive sense is the spiritual disciplines and, th- and that's those things we've mentioned, prayer and worship and, and reading the Bible and, and spending time in church and engaging in ministry and so forth. Um, in fact, James 14 says, Therefore, to the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. So as we practice self-control enabled by the Holy Spirit, we do the right thing. And if we do the right thing and then do, and know the right thing but don't do it, that's actually sin. So self-control, a very, very critical um, virtue and fruit of the Spirit. I I said we were going to compare each of these to the culture, and I I wrote in my notes regarding self-control and the culture, are you kidding? (laughs) I mean, you talk about a culture that wants to indulge self, um, even in many cases if it destroys somebody else. Our culture is just an indulgent culture, uh, and is always concerned about self and me, someone said, self-control without control is self. And that seems to be the, uh, the mindset of the world today. Uh, self-control without self, hey, just self. And self is loosed to indulge itself in, in seemingly every way. Now, the fifth thing that Peter mentions here is perseverance. Now, we saw the first one was diligence. The fifth one, perseverance, again, the great stress on this idea of staying at it. Uh, Perseverance is defined as undeterred by difficulty, setbacks, or criticism. So, again, undeterred by difficulty, by setbacks, and by criticism. And and, uh, that last one, perhaps, is the most difficult for many. Uh, Criticism tends to deter us from what we're going towards, we're moving towards. In this case, of course, godliness. But perseverance says it doesn't matter about criticism, doesn't matter about setbacks or difficulties, I know the right thing to do and I'm going to pursue that. Galatians 6-9 says, let us not lose heart in doing what is good, for in due time we shall reap if we do not grow weary. And boy, if there's a verse in the Bible about perseverance, that is it. Uh, don't lose heart in doing good, for in due time, see you may not see the rewards of persevering immediately. It may be down the road, but in due time, we shall reap if we do not grow weary. You've heard perhaps that phrase, and I think it is a great phrase that the Christian life is a marathon, not a sprint. How true is that? I think as as many as as much as any of these nine qualities. Perseverance is a true mark of spiritual maturity. In Matthew 13:20 20 and 21, this is the parable of the sowers, of the parable of the sower. Jesus says the one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. So, okay, good start, but he doesn't have diligence, he doesn't persevere. Jesus says, Yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises uh, because of the word, uh, immediately he falls away. He does not persevere. Or James 1.12 says this, Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. So we just can't emphasize this particular one enough. Calvin Coolidge, uh, former president of the United States in about 1932, he said this about perseverance. I love this. I love this quote. Nothing in the world can take the place of persistence. Talent will not. Genius will not. Education will not. Persistence and determination alone are omnipotent. And I uh, hung that statement up on the, the wall the walls of the bedrooms of my two sons when they were young. I wanted that to get into their heads, and I think it did, because they are two great young men with a great character, and they're young men who know how to persevere, even in the midst of difficulty. Uh, What does our culture say? Well, the culture does um, is fine and encourages perseverance, but unfortunately, so often in the culture, in the world, that perseverance is just to fulfill selfish goals. Um, in some way to get what I want. Persevere to get what I want. Uh, to get ahead, to get rich, to get material stuff, or, or whatever the case may be. And that is not what the Word of God says we are to persevere for. Um, so perseverance, super important. Here's number six. Uh, godliness. Godliness is a Godward attitude, doing that which is well-pleasing to God. Not, not too surprising there, doing that which is well-pleasing to God. Uh, Matthew 6.33, um, seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness. That is certainly a Godward attitude. Or uh, Mark twenty verse thir- 20, uh rather Mark twelve verses twenty-nine and thirty. Jesus answered and said, The foremost commandment is hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. Clearly, a God-word attitude, an attitude of godliness, to love the Lord above all other things, and to love the Lord with all your being. Of course, the culture, again, we see this pattern as we work through these virtues. Uh, virtues. The, the culture says, uh, I want to please me. I don't want to have to please God. I may acknowledge God. I may say, "Yeah, there's a God," uh, but I want to. Or, but I, and if I do, there's sometimes that attitude of, of God needs to please me, and that's the cultural mindset. Please me. Put me first. Uh, and there are a couple of uh, Bible uh, verses I want to mention related to this. The very last two verses in the book of Judges. When you read these verses and you understand. Uh, the implication of this. It's its really ominous bad news uh, for what was to come in Israel. Judges 21, verses 24 and 25. Uh, the sons of Israel departed from there at that time, every man to his tribe and family, and each one of them went out from there to his inheritance. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Um, that's not a good place to be in, uh, as a church, as a family, as a nation where everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes, that's sure to go bad because humans want to please themselves. They don't want to have an attitude of godliness. Also, um, John uh, uh, 3.19 in regard to our culture, Jesus says this. Uh, it's very dark words regarding humanity. Jesus says, men love darkness rather than light. Of course, we know that Jesus was the light of the world that came into the world to dispel the gar- darkness from John chapter 1. But nonetheless, as Jesus says, men love darkness rather than light. So we want to have a godly attitude, a Godward attitude and doing that which is well-pleasing to God. Here's number seven. Uh, number seven is brotherly kindness. Uh, this is actually the Greek word philadelphia. And it means brotherly kindness. It means tender affection. That's interesting. Uh, it's a love that values and esteems others. It's a love that is ready to serve and to defer to others. Again, that's not very uh, popular with the human nature, the idea of deferring to others. But here's what 1 Peter 1.22 says. And, and Peter is commending these believers. He says, Since you have in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, that's Philadelphia, sincere love of the brethren, fervently love, that's agapao, a a form of agapis, uh, fervently love one another from the heart. So Peter actually mentions two uh, types of love there, two of the Greek words for love. I'll read that again. Since you have in obedience to the truth, Purify your souls for a sincere love of the brethren. Fervently love one another from the heart. Um, That's What a great instruction. And he seems to be saying, look, you're doing this. Press on in this. So a tender affection, a love that values and esteems others, a love which is ready to serve. Uh, What we see uh, in the world are things like grudges, grievances, Uh, unresolved contentions, unforgiveness, if those things exist in the body of Christ, they are to end immediately. They heard a a little three-word phrase that I thought was so powerful, and it's this. Resolve or dissolve. I love that. Resolve or dissolve. So resolve the problems, especially if it's in the church. Resolve them or, or it's going to dissolve. The church itself may dissolve, and I actually saw that one happened once in a church I was attending many years ago. So those problems that we see in the world, grudges, grievances, uh, contentions, unforgiveness, and so forth, if those exist in the church uh, and they're not being resolved, the church is in trouble. Those are to end in the body, and they're to end immediately. Another saying I heard, uh, pretty good, I thought, churches don't go bankrupt, they nickel and dime themselves to death. And they do through these kind of problems with not showing brotherly kindness to one another. Um, And by the way, um, local churches usually aren't destroyed by false teaching uh, and that kind of thing. Generally, that's not what ruins a church. But it's by contention among believers um, that are never resolved. It's not, you know, brotherly kindness will never hurt a church. Will never destroy a church. Brotherly kindness, Philadelphia, and agape will never destroy a church. But contention among the members uh that is not resolved, that will destroy a church. So the culture of course in regard to brotherly kindness, um you know, they're they're not against that necessarily, but I do remember I had a professor at a state university I went to and he, he was uh, quite an interesting guy. And one of the things that he said when he began to say this, I was quite impressed at first. He said, uh, we need to, you know, students, you need to help each other out. You need to support each other. You need, you need to be friends and, and support one another to, to help each other move along. But then he said, but really you do this for selfish reasons. I thought, well, what a terrible ethic that is. Uh, help out each other, support and encourage one another. Not because you legitimately care about your quote friends, but you do it for selfish reasons. Because maybe they'll come back and do that and help you sometime. Well, listen, that is a completely unchristian, non-christian approach. That is not brotherly kindness. That is uh, fleshly. That is the Greek word sarx, fleshly, or carnal. Uh, so, brotherly kindness. I'll read it one more time. Tender affection, love that values and esteems others, love that is ready to serve and defer. And then the eighth the eighth virtue, if I said there were nine, I may have said there were nine. There's eight. The, number eight is love, and this goes right along with number seven. Uh, number eight is love, agape love, uh, not a feelings-based love. Nothing wrong with feelings, rightly balanced. But agape is not necessarily a feelings-based love. Agape is an unconditional love that we choose to do. Uh, It seeks the welfare of others. It works ill to none. It seeks the opportunity to do good to all. Uh, A very good way to describe agape is love in action. It's a very practical love not necessarily based on emotions or convenience or even on the worthiness of the object of your love. Again, it's a choice uh, that we are to make daily. The culture, in our culture today, love equals emotion, love equals feeling. Again, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. Uh, I have great loving feelings towards my wife, and I always have, and I still do to this day. It's wonderful. But if that's the only way to define uh, love, then you're in for a a lot of uh, up and downs, a lot of uh, difficulty in your relationships. Because the idea there seems to me to be, I love you for what you can do for me, or I love you for what I can get out of you. That's not Christian love. And, And by the way, the primary love I think that God has loved us with is this agape love. Because God's love for us really doesn't gain him him anything. Friends, God is completely, uh, he is complete, he is uh, fulfilled, he is happy, if you will, uh, without you and I. He doesn't need us in any way. In fact, God has never had any need, no matter how small, no matter how, how tiny, and he never will have any need. God has no needs. He is complete. He doesn't get smarter or richer or stronger or more fulfilled. It doesn't improve his self-image because we love, but because we love him. And the ultimate example of this practical, selfless agape love, of course, was Jesus. Um, and he died, and we really seem to get all the benefits. All the benefits of God's love seem to be for us. So uh, that last uh, phrase, by the way. In uh, 1 Corinthians 12 31, I always thought it was really interesting and uh, important. In which Paul says, as as he's just about to, he's just introducing, uh, of course, what we call today chapter 13, which is the great love chapter in the Bible. You hear it read at weddings and all sorts of occasions. But Paul, as he's introducing that, he says, Behold, I show you a more excellent way. He doesn't say, I show you an excellent feeling or emotion. He says, I show you a more excellent way. So, the idea there is love in action. All right, verse 8. Notice here in verse 8, If these qualities are yours and increasing, says Paul, they are yours, or Peter, yours and increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, Uh, Notice uh, that we never in this life reach a point of complete arrival. Um, If these qualities, Peter says, are yours and are increasing. So Peter, and of course the Lord, wants to see these qualities in in us and continue growing. Uh, God's intention is continual growth. He is urging us, encouraging us, exhorting us, sometimes disciplining us, getting us out of that proverbial comfort zone sometimes. Uh, he, he All these things in order to keep us growing, keep us increasing in these eight areas of virtue that we talked about. God's intention is continued growth. There's There never seems to be any point of spiritual retirement. In fact, in uh, it, one of the things that God does that I thought was, I want to mention this one especially because it's had such an impact in my life, in this matter of continuing uh, to grow me up, is God providing godly examples in my life. Uh, I'm so thankful for the examples God has given me. Um, Philippians 3.17, Paul says, Brethren, join in following my example, and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have have in us. Paul there saying, look at the believers who are are, uh, more mature, than you, maybe the, the people leading your church, the older people in the church, the older people who are mature anyway, uh, you look to them and see what their lives are like. How did they get the way they are? That is so important. I can't tell you uh, the importance that my own father had in showing me the example of a godly man, a god a man of incredible integrity and faithfulness. So important to have those kind of godly examples around us. So all of these ways God uses to urge us to continual growth, urging, encouraging, exhorting, sometimes disciplining, providing godly examples, these help us to grow. And again, the point here is these qualities are yours and are increasing. And if the goal is Christ's likeness and that is the goal, Romans 8.29 says, what we are predestined to is to be conformed to the image of his Son. That's what we're predestined to. Uh, then can we ever fully arrive? Not in this life, I don't think. And again, uh, Paul from uh, Philippians 3, verse 12 says, even Paul says, not that I have become perfect. And the Greek term there is teleao, which means has some sense of absolute perf- moral perfect- perfection. Paul says, I have not arrived at that. And so this is an ongoing study in our life or ongoing uh, practice of our life. Hebrews 12, 1-3, read those three verses, says this, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So these things that we've mentioned here, uh, the non-negotiables, everything pertaining to life and God, and this idea of fixing our eyes on Jesus is the absolute key to the increasing. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of faith. All the things we've talked about so far in 2 Peter, I really think hinge on what uh, Hebrews 12 says. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the absolute key to increasing uh, these qualities. Quick story here to uh, illustrate the importance of keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, our goal. The California coast was shrouded in fog the morning of July fourth, 1952. 21 miles to the west on Catalina Island, a 34-year-old woman waded into the water and began swimming toward California, determined to be the first woman woman to ever swim the 21-mile straight. I, can you believe she uh, wanted to swim 21 miles? I can barely drive 21 miles. So she wants to be the first one to swim this 21-mile stretch. Her name was Florence Chadwick, and she had already been the first woman to swim the English Channel in both directions. The water was numbing cold that morning, and the fog was so thick that Chadwick could hardly see the boats in her own party. The boats there to scare away the sharks. As the hours ticked off, she swam on. Fatigue had never been a serious problem. It was only the bone-chilling cold of the water that was threatening. More than 15 hours later, numbed with cold, the swimmer asked to be taken out. She couldn't go on any longer. Her mother and her trainer in a boat beside her urged Florence Chadwick to go on, as they knew they were getting close to the shore. Yet all she could see was the dense fog. A few minutes later, the swimmer was taken out of the water, and later, realizing that she had been within a half mile of the shore, she said, I'm not excusing myself, but I—but if I could have seen the shore, I might have made it. What a pertinent story, a timely story that is for us. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus. And when we do that, we will keep increasing in these golden virtues that Peter has listed here. Uh, what I want, to, I want to note the three results of this increasing in these virtues of Christ's likeness. Three results of that. First of all, um, we have the result is, is that, as Peter says here, although he says it in the negative, he says you are neither unuseful or unfruitful. Well, that means you are useful and fruitful, fruitful in, in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the place of usefulness and fruitfulness... Uh, is in both the full and exact knowledge of who Jesus is, and in the relational participation in knowing Him. Remember that term, epignosis. It's about intellectual, exact intellectual knowledge, and it's about the relational participation in knowing Him. So, what does useful and fruitful in Jesus Christ mean? I think there's there's a couple of aspects that useful uh, is means. Uh, is the means of God's work. Useful, that term is the means of God's work. Fruitful is the outcome of God's work. So to be useful for Christ, uh, several points on this I want to make, to be useful for Christ. One is we must be pliable. Um, now, obviously, I don't mean pliable, pliable in our beliefs, but pliable in allowing God to use us however he wants. So, um, God may change your direction. He may do it very suddenly. That doesn't mean you aren't in his will. But God may may change uh, your direction. I thought about Acts 16, 9 and 10. If you want to be useful to God, you have to be pliable. Here's what happened to Paul uh, as they were on a missionary journey. Acts 16, 9, a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. When, when we had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. And then the next verse says, So putting out to sea. I love that they immediately began to obey God. But listen, Paul wasn't going to this place, to Macedonia. That was not his intention. But he was pliable, and when God communicated something to him, he immediately changed his plan. So God may call us to very unexpected things. I know that he's done that in my life, but he's God. He can do that. Here's a second thing. We must be pliable. Second, we must be quick to obey. Uh, My wife and I, for many years, have led the the parenting ministry at our church, and uh, one of the things that, uh, with the material we use, we learned is that delayed obedience is disobedience. If God speaks to you about something you need to obey and you delay, uh, you're really disobeying him. Um, Esther 4:13 4, and 14 says this. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther: Do not imagine that you are in the king's palace, that that you in the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. You might remember there was a plan for all the Jews to be killed. Uh, And Mordecai says, for if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. And you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not attained a royalty for such a time as this. Uh, Mordecai is saying, don't delay to obey here. And really in that situation, and in many situations, the consequences could be disastrous, so we must be quick to obey. Third, we must be diligent. Uh, There's a great story in Acts 5 about uh, the, the disciples preaching Jesus. They get called in before the Sanhedrin, and they get flogged. It's not the Roman scourging, but nonetheless, it's a flogging, and it's very painful, and they're told, do not go preach Jesus again. Well, you know what they do? It says the very next day they went back and started preaching Jesus about the gospel. Uh, They were very diligent despite the cost that it was to them. They were useful. Here's another thing about being useful as the means of God's work. We must be courageous. Joshua 1, 6-9 says this about courageous, and you'll see the repetition of that term in this passage. Uh, Be strong and courageous, for you shall give this people possession of the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn to the right or to the left, so that you may have success everywhere you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth... But you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. What a great passage. Boy, I could preach a bunch of different sermons out of that passage. But the emphasis of the moment is, be courageous. Be courageous uh you want to be used by God well one of the means of God using you is for you to be courageous uh a fifth one and by the way i've got six and i'm not saying this is everything we could list but six but six key ones the fifth one is uh in found in ephesians 6 and you may be familiar with this uh the full armor of God uh paul says in ephesians 6:10 finally be strong in the lord and in the strength of his might Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. And then 13. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. So put on the full armor of God. And there's there's several different pieces of the armor, including the sword of the spirit and so forth. you got to put that in place. If you want to be useful for God, we're talking about the means of God's work here for us, and that includes the full armor of God. And I think another way to say that is, whatever it takes to be prepared, be prepared. And then finally on this particular point, usefulness, we must, I, this, this is intuitively obvious, but I feel compelled to say it, we must follow God's instructions. God's ways done through God's method will lead us through God's purposes. Uh, Leviticus 10 tells us a very grim story about uh, the sons of Aaron, Nadab and Abihu. Now, God had very specifically told uh, the priests how they were to do this particular this particular event. And it was, there was a very specific command. And uh, Nadab and Abihu uh, did not obey God when they did this. So Leviticus 10.1. Now, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took their respective fire pans, and after putting uh, fire in them, placed incense on it, and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from the presence of the Lord, and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, It is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I will be treated as holy, and before all the people I will be honored. So, Aaron therefore kept silence. So, Nadab and Abihu, uh, priests, apparently, they did not, uh, obey God's ways, God's methods, and certainly did not accomplish God's purposes. Now, the Lord always doesn't, doesn't always respond uh, in that way, obviously, when people don't follow his ways, his methods. Uh, but that was an example. What God expects is we follow his instructions if we're gonna be Useful, so he will do his kingdom work in us and through us. We will be useful in the means of God's work. The second part of this useful and fruitful is this word fruitful. I've got five types of fruits uh, I want to mention to you. Uh, Fruit that show fruit shows two things about a tree: shows what kind of tree it is, and it shows the health of the tree. So, what does your spiritual fruit say about you? Well, first of all, there may be no no fruit. Well, that's a bad situation because that may mean you're not saved. It may mean spiritual death is still in your life. Um, James is very clear. Uh, if there's no spiritual fruit, if there's no uh, change in your life, you don't have saving faith. So no fruit, very bad situation. Secondly, there may be some fruit. Maybe uh, for a new Christian, or maybe a Christian that really hasn't quite come yet to that Romans twelve one and 2 commitment, where where I think that is the, where the real radical transformation comes when we offer ourselves a living and holy sacrifice, you may have some fruit, but maybe not all the fruit yet that God wants you to have. Uh, third, you may have fruit, but it's in bad condition. It's rotten. Uh, maybe it's fruit, but it's affected by selfishness or... Um, Or sin in some way. You know, we do know from 1 Corinthians 3 that Paul, talking to the Corinthian Christians, does call them carnal. He says you're still fleshly. So their fruit was in bad condition. Uh, Fourthly, it is possible to have fruit that looks good, but maybe is hollow or without any nutritional value. And we can look, look no farther than the church at Ephesus in Revelation 2, 1 to 7, to see what that's about. Now, it's possible this church had fallen into some kind of legalism, or maybe they were just following tradition and a ritualism, but we know their fruit probably looked good, but it wasn't healthy fruit. Here's what Jesus says to them To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance, that you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not. And you found them to be false. And you have perseverance, that's good, and have endured for my namesake, and have not grown weary. But I have this against you. You have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen, and repent, and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you, and and will remove your lampstand out of its place, unless you repent. That's the first five verses of Revelation two. So there was some probably was probably fruit that looked good, and yet they had left their first love, and the first love he's talking about himself, about Jesus. Uh, So. Uh, appearance of fruit was good, but it was not really good inside. And then fifth, fruit that is healthy and plentiful, fruit that clearly identifies you as a Christian and your character, um, that you are surrendered to Jesus Christ, that are you you are influencing others for the Lord. Uh, being fruitful um, is both what the Holy Spirit is doing in you. Man, that's the fruit of the spirits. The fruit of the spirit. That's the virtues. Here we see in Second Peter. Uh, chapter one, that's the discipline of the Lord producing the peaceful fruit of righteousness in you. That is, uh, the discipline that is good and actually proves you are a child of God. So all these things, these, this fruit that is the healthy and plentiful and, uh, and, uh, is being developed in you by the Holy Spirit. So it's, 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 um, what the Holy Spirit is doing in you. And secondly, it is what the Holy Spirit is doing through you. In serving and ministering, you are a child of God, after all. What the Holy Spirit is doing through you, serving and ministering to other believers, we're supposed to be doing that, and to the lost as well. Again, two aspects of fruitfulness. What the Holy Spirit is doing in you, through all those means I mentioned, and what the Holy Spirit is doing through you. And I uh, can't help recalling here, and again, the parable of the sower, the, uh, the fourth type of soil in Matthew thirteen twenty-three, And Jesus says, And the one on whom seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. So we are both useful and fruitful as we live in the knowledge, the epignosis of Jesus. That is what I encourage you to in this lesson. Thank you for joining me. We'll wrap this up, and next time we'll move on to uh, uh, the remainder of this uh, part of the first chapter of Peter. God bless you. Thank you again.